Well, as I was saying, I've been looking at these, the big stones first thing, which is from Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. And uh, the idea is just about priorities for us as Christians in the church. And we looked at four things, which is on the second slide. We looked at Jesus as the center. We looked at combustion, which was talking about the power of the Holy Spirit being very, very important to the church. We looked at the Great Commission, and I feel... Really, I do feel more alert to sharing my faith. Honestly, do. And uh, I want to keep that up now as, as God's provoking us to, to keep outward looking. And then finally, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the climax of the ages. So that's what I want to talk about at the end, because that's something that we also can see as a major part of the church life in the book of Acts or, or in the New Testament, something that we're very conscious of. But I want to, want to just work my way into it for a moment uh, by drawing attention to, to, to the uniqueness of human life, really. We need all to be aware that this world is not all there is. And as we this morning celebrate these young babies born, these dear little babies, we dedicate them, dedicate the parents we need to remind ourselves that every individual, and these three little individuals as well, are unique little living souls. They're not just higher animals. They're not just uh, biological machines. There is something of eternity in them. When God made men and women, human beings, it says in the Bible that the Lord breathed his ruach, his breath, into them and they became a living soul. They are not the same. We are not the same as just animals. We're not just evolved with blind chance behind us. There is something very special about each human being. That is Christian theology and it is one of the reasons why the Christian faith is so strong in caring for individuals and and looking after them. There's a, a profound belief that each one of us was knit together in our mother's womb, that God knows us and knew us. And actually, that one day we will all stand before God. Those three dear little lives that started just this year. And we pray for them. But that, that's the start of an eternal uh, eternity for them. And one day, they also will see the Lord. This isn't going to end when they die. Life is a lot more than just what we see and hear around us. Just the material things around us. This world is not all there is. That is something that is very important for us as Christians. In fact, we could broaden it out a bit and say we believe on the basis of the Bible that history is going somewhere. That everything around us is not just the product of blind chance, but that there's a God who is moving through history and taking things to a conclusion. And actually, this is a profound philosophical position to hold as Christians. But I believe it's utterly true. History is not just cycles or random sort of activities. There is a purpose. God is taking it somewhere. And we need to understand that and that will affect our daily life. Now there is an awesome, simple truth which is contained in Acts 1 and verse 11 that we've read several times before because I've been speaking on this for several weeks. And it says this, Uh, just cutting in on that verse which will be up behind me I think men of Galilee, these are the angels talking to the disciples men of Galilee they said why do you stand here looking into the sky this is after the ascension of Jesus this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven here is an awesome truth that I 
fundamentally believe we will all see this same Jesus. We will all see him. The same Jesus who walked on the earth with the disciples, who fed the 5,000, who had children around him and who uh, touched the lepers. The same Jesus who died in agony on the cross, who rose physically from the dead in the power of an endless life with a new body, but the, the same body as it were, resurrected and renewed. And who then ascended back to the Father and is today in the presence of God. This same Jesus we will all see. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. You know, one day, everybody in this room will see this same Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? There's a, verse, a few verses in Philippians, which I, I think, again, on the, I'll be on the screen for you. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. And it's, they say this, Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus. We'll either bow in awe and love or in an overwhelming fear, I guess, would be one way of putting it, and shock, I suppose, too. But we will bow to him. We will see this same Jesus and we will bow to him. And how we behave now, even how we decide now, maybe even today, we'll decide in what way we bow to Jesus, with love and awe and delight, but probably with a feeling of great humility and maybe a little bit of fear, but, but a love fear, we will bow before him, or we'll bow before him with, with shock, maybe confusion, and, and probably a very real fear, because we've despised him, we've not thought about him, we've heard about him, at least on one occasion, that baby Thanksgiving went to, whatever it is, and, and we took him, didn't take him seriously, but now we're seeing him. Because I believe this is a future, this verse and the verse we read before, tell us a future that's there for all of us, that one day we will see this same Jesus and we will bow to him and acknowledge him as the Lord. Now this event will occur at the return of Jesus Christ to wrap up history. It may occur in some ways before that because we may well, many of us will, probably die and see him then. But actually the, the event that I'm particularly thinking of that's probably focused in these verses is the final return of Christ to wrap up history and to usher in a new age, new heavens and new earth. The age that the Bible might point to and we often loosely call heaven but it's not purely about floating around on clouds. It's about a new heaven and a new earth recreated by God and cleansed and purified. Now, this return of Jesus, this same Jesus coming back again, is not some weird doctrine for a few crackpots. It's actually prophesied hundreds of times in the Bible. In fact, there are more prophecies about the return of Jesus, or his second coming, as it's sometimes called, than there are about his first coming. And there are many about his first coming, and they proved to be true and accurate. But actually, there are numerically more about his return. 
And in some ways, his return, biblically, is sort of part of the same process. We're in a sort of uh, grace interlude while the gospel goes out to the world. But the, the messianic sort of break-in that comes with Jesus, he came as the Jesus of Nazareth, he lived, he died, he rose again, and in a sense now the good news goes to the whole world, to every tribe and nation, the good news that brings hope of salvation and hope of eternal life with God and reconciliation with God. And then that phase is brought to an end as he comes back. And there's judgment and then a new heavens and a new earth. And really, biblically, it's all sort of part of the same package. So that when the Old Testament prophets looked at this period, the Messianic age, they often saw it a bit closer together than we do. It's sometimes called prophetic foreshortening. It's like when you look at mountains in the distance and the foothills look very close to the mountains behind them when you get there there's a fairly big gap between the two ranges but but from a distance you think they're all rather close together well it's that sort of thing that that when the old testament prophets prophesied about the messiah and the king and the suffering servant and his reign they often get a bit close together in their prophecies we now know that there's a bit of a separation time but they are all part of the same package to use another word, to use one word. They're they're part of Jesus coming, bringing the salvation, and then one day coming back to wrap things up. Now, in the Old Testament, therefore, there are many prophecies that would be probably best interpreted as Jesus' return in glory. But even in the New Testament, where things are probably clearer, there are over 250 clear references to the return of Jesus Christ. A theologian called Bruce Milne put it like this, and that will go on the screen. The second coming of Christ is not confined to a few obscure passages, nor does belief in it depend on highly imaginative interpretations of symbolic visions. It lies on the surface of the Bible for all to see. I'm speaking largely to an audience, I'm sure, that are already believers, but I just want us then to get hold of this as believers this morning that actually the coming back of Jesus, us seeing this same Jesus, is not some crackpot fringe thing that a few cults make a lot of. Sadly, sometimes things like that look as though it's like that. But actually, it is a fundamental core doctrine of Christianity. And as I'm emphasising, it it probably is more um, stated in the New Testament in some ways, more emphasised prophetically than even the first coming in the Bible. And so, as Bruce Milne says, it's not an imaginative exercise just playing around with a few obscure obscure scriptures. It's actually on the surface of the Bible. It's there, obviously. And the simplicity and clarity of this is well summed up in those early verses in Acts. And I would like you to to open your Bibles to Acts 1. I know from my, you know, the congregation here, we've looked at this many times. But I just want you to read verses 6 to 11 again. Because what I want to do is see how simply and clearly the real biblical doctrine on this is. And honestly, Christians have not done this a service by making it so complicated and with so much weird speculation around this subject. Let's just read in from verse 6 of Acts 1. So when they met together, they asked him, this is they're asking the risen Lord Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, I want you please, as, as brothers and sisters together, some of you may be visiting from other backgrounds, to just be open-minded to what I want to say over the next few minutes because I think there are clear directions in the New Testament about this subject of the end times and of the return of Jesus. And here are some very simple, clear instructions that we can draw from these verses and I believe you could mostly support quite easily from several other passages as well. Here's the first simple point. We are not to speculate about the times and dates that God has set under his own, by his own authority for the end of the world and the return of Jesus. We are not to speculate. We are not going to know. Jesus is very clear. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You can speculate all you like. You're not going to know. Now, all through my 30 years in church leadership, I have had people fascinated with this subject. And I've had people give me material showing me how this one or that one is the Antichrist. This one or that one uh, is showing that it, we're, we're in the end times and the date. I even remember a fellow at Hastings um, who had, and this is old, bit old, tells how old it was, had a big computer printout. You don't get those now, do you? They're a big like concertina thing. Does anybody know what a computer printout looks like with all little holes down the side? And it was really long. If I'd thrown it out, it would have gone nearly across the stage. And it was all points of the last couple of centuries and how they were interpreted. And then he had, when Jesus was coming back, and my memory doesn't serve me too well, it was either 2006, 2007, or 2008. So he might have been right still, mightn't he? No. Uh, but it was sometime in the last year or two, that, uh, and I honestly can't remember, but at the end, because I went to the end to see when he said, <laughs> just, and it was, in my opinion, that's ridiculous. And that's unscriptural, that you've, you've somehow been able to interpret everything and get it precise. Jesus said, we will not. Several passages of scripture are very clear, we will not know the time when Jesus will return and the end of history. So anyone who claims to know specifically when Jesus is coming back can automatically be considered to be wrong. So I didn't even need to read this, I knew it was wrong, just because that's what it tried to do. And that, I think, you can do with biblical authority. The Bible is clear that Jesus will come at an unexpected time. And therefore, we need to be ready at all and every time for his return. And that applies to all and every one of us. So that's one simple point. Let's look at another simple one, taken from these early verses of Acts. What about ethnic Israel? The people of Israel. The disciples ask a question in verse 6 from the perspective of their expectations of what will happen for Israel, their people, their Jews, uh, and, and what, what, what will happen and how Old Testament prophecies about Israel's restoration will be fulfilled. Now, I think it's interesting what we can just draw from these verses. They ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Now, Jesus' answer does not include a direct no to their question. So you need to know that. We don't want to go beyond Scripture. He doesn't say, no, 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 that's ridiculous. He doesn't say a direct no to their question. I'll tell you essentially what they're told. Essentially they're told that whatever purposes and plans God has that may be fulfilled for the nation of Israel, that's not their prime concern. Actually, they were to be concerned with taking the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to every nation, including Israel, their compatriots, in fact, to their own people here in Jerusalem, to Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. They were to stay focused on that. They were to be focused on Jesus Christ himself, the good news he gave, the power of the Holy Spirit to take that good news, and they were to primarily at the beginning bring that good news to their fellow Jews because that's where they started. And then they would go out beyond that to the ends of the earth. And frankly, that is still the game plan. And I think that's still the sort of answer that by and large broadly we live with. That our attitude to ethnic Jews, to those of ethnic Israel, is to love them, is to respect them, is to pray for them, and is to tell them about Jesus Christ as their Saviour and their Messiah. It's to preach the Gospel to them with love and respect. And let God work out how all those prophecies are going to come together. I personally think they will come together in and through Jesus Christ, because I think there's other scriptures on that basis. And it will be in Christ that Jew and Gentile come to, to, to salvation and come to form one new man. But you can go on all morning speculating. There's a simplicity and a clarity here that we have to let God work out how all the prophecies work out. In actual fact, when Jesus came the first time, there were some amazing fulfilments of prophecies that you wouldn't have spotted until he came. And I suspect it will be like that at his second coming. But for us, there is a clarity. We bring the gospel to every people and nation. With respect and love for the roots of our faith, we preach Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what we're meant to do. Here's another one from these verses. Jesus' disciples are not to seek after earthly political power. They're not to look for that. They're looked to be majoring on the power of the kingdom of God and the kingdom that will last forever. Now, why do I say that? Well, verse 6 has behind it their question an implication that they were still hankering after uh, political earthly power. That's really what's behind it. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It wasn't purely a spiritual inquiry. It was rooted in Old Testament prophecies, but their concern was still at this point that Jesus was somehow going to do something political was going to establish a political victory and deliverance. Maybe get rid of the Romans in some way and they would set up some kingdom on earth. Now they'd been a bit obsessed with that, these disciples, all through Jesus' time with them. There's several references in Mark and Luke, you can read them for yourself, where they, they say, look, when you're, when you're sitting on your throne, can we be on the right and the left? And, da, 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 da. and they, they, they're still thinking that Jesus is going to basically set up an earthly kingdom rather similar to any other kingdom, but obviously much better and hopefully more effective and long-lasting. But that's still what they've got in mind. But actually Jesus immediately tells them, you are going to receive a different sort of power. That's in verse 8, really. 
and there. He's saying you're not going to get a political power. This isn't about politics. This is about spiritual power. The empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is what will set your agenda. Not earthly power. And you know the church is always tussling with this temptation through the 2,000 year history that, that there's a temptation to be more interested in earthly political power than in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that some Christians are called to serve in places of influence, both in, in commerce and in politics. Christians should seek to be in influential places. It's great when you get effective Christian politicians like Wilbur, William Wilberforce and many others you can look at in our own history. When you get Christians who are in positions to, to make, have influence on things like education or, or other things, political things, that's fine. But the church itself is, although it's to pray for kings, pray for governments, and be very interested in them, not unengaged from them, the church itself is not meant to be a temporal political power. I personally think when church and state get entangled, it's always bad news. And it always has been through history. It's not really our job to end up as officially the church trying to run the country. And I mean there are many examples. We obviously in our own country have seen many through history where the church and state are too closely linked. Even good godly people like those of the Reformation often got in a tangle when they tried to be in charge of things and run Geneva or try and decide how they, they could run the country with, say, Old Testament laws. The church is not primarily doing that. It can influence, it can pray, it should preach the gospel, it should be a prophetic voice. Individual Christians can be very influential. But the church is of God's kingdom. And that's our main concern. And the power we seek is the power of the Holy Spirit, which means we bring words of, 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 of challenge and of comfort and of love. We do works of, of, of service, works of mercy, and we see wonders. We want to see miracles. We want to be bothered with that rather than the other things. We want to, that's where our focus is, on the words, works, and wonders that the Holy Spirit's called us to do. And Jesus swerves their minds away from this idea, diverts them from this idea of, look, are you going to get your kingdom? Are we going to really get to beat up the Romans? No, no, no. You're going to receive a power, and at this point they hardly understand what he's talking about. They soon will by chapter 2 of Acts. But he said there's going to be a different sort of power, and that's going to empower you to go out and change the whole world, actually, not just one nation by being in charge of it. Here's another point that comes out from this. This is the last point I want to make on this. It comes really from verse 11. They were clearly told not to stand around gazing up into the sky, preoccupied, waiting for Jesus to reappear. There is a definite reproof implied in the angel's comment. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Christians are not meant to be standing around looking into the sky. And boy, do they often end up doing that. I've got a lot of respect for Americans, but in the US there are huge tracts of Christian, huge swathes of Christian uh, churches that seem to be obsessed with looking into the sky about the return of Jesus. Whole sets of novels are written Whole books are written, and it's all about somehow looking at the sky, sky scanning. Just when, when is Jesus coming back? How's he coming back? Actually, this simple challenge 
Don't, what are you doing standing around looking at the sky? Get on with the job he's called you to do. We're not meant to be doing that. Jesus will come back. We will see this same Jesus. God alone knows the timing. We can have hints. I am not uninterested in this subject, but this morning I feel we've got to get hold of the big stones first. The big stone is he's coming back and we have a job to do until he comes back. And we need to be very clear, until he comes, we need to be sharing the gospel. We won't bring Jesus back any quicker by gazing at the sky. Actually, if anything would hasten the return of Jesus, and obviously I'm not totally sure how far we go with this with the sovereignty of God, but I I feel there's a hint in Scripture, if anything would hasten it, it would be taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because if in heaven there are going to be members of every tribe and nation and tongue in heaven, and that's a, a statement of God's intent, then the sooner we get to every nation, tribe and tongue, the sooner we may see the return of Jesus. And if you take some of the statements Jesus himself made, Matthew 24, etc., there's a hint that the first thing that's got to happen before I come back is the gospel's got to go to the whole world. Now, you know, we could debate that. That's a more fruitful debate. Can we hasten the return of Jesus by touching the whole world? Well, I think possibly you could argue for that. Might have a bit of debate about it. But standing around staring at the sky is going to do nothing. In fact, if it's stopping you from sharing the gospel, it's going to be counterproductive, if anything. I mean, and and that sort of powerful challenge comes out in really a simple way in this verse. You know, the angels say it. What are you doing looking up at the sky? He's coming back. He's told you what to do. Get ready for the empowering he told you about. So, and as I come towards the end, I just want to, this is a concluding section. There will be a personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. And history will be brought to an end by that event. One day we will all see this same Jesus. So what is our reaction to that? Well, just two two things, really. One is, for those of us who already have faith in Jesus and know him as our Saviour and Lord, let's look at 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, And what we will be has not yet been made known. But but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then we will long for his return. We'll be eager to see him and to be like him. We will see him as he is. We will long for that changing, what Paul called that sort of groaning. You know, we know the weakness of our flesh, proneness to temptation, the battles we have with sickness and confusion sometimes and troubled times. And we say, Lord, we long for that day when we'll see you face to face and we'll be like you and know you as you are and ourselves will be renewed and resurrected and we will be ourselves but a a Christ like ourselves, like him, John Groves, but renewed with a new body. We sort of learn, long for that, yearn for it. And as a result, this is the point, with this hope in you, you purify yourself. We live not as though this world was all there is. Christian friends, we've got to learn 
to, to think differently. I, I personally struggle with it. I realise the materialism creeps in on me all the time. So, so strong in our culture. But we have to remind ourselves this world is not all there is. And the things we have, are, we're only stewards of them. And we've got to put something eternal into our lives. We've got to, we've got to be putting in fruit for eternity. We've got to be living like we could meet Jesus tomorrow and have to tell him why we were doing what we're doing. How about that? I mean, that's a good thing. That purifies you. You know, tonight you're going to give a full report to Jesus for your life. Well, it does make you sit up and take notice, doesn't it? But this is not just some dream thing. It could be. That's true. And one day it will definitely be true. You will be telling Jesus about your life. So we live now with an eye on eternity. We live now tasting of the age to come. We live now wanting to please him and hear his well done, good and faithful servant. We are conscious, very deeply conscious, this world is not all there is. That's one effect, a major effect of of this doctrine for those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. But there might be valid to, I think, explore another category of people. There might be some here who basically say, I'm a bit bamboozled by what you're talking about. I've never heard all this stuff. Or you have heard it and always thought it was just weird. You might still think it's weird, but I tell you, it's very central weirdness then. It's not peripheral. It's a fundamental truth that you will one day see Jesus and meet him. So what do you do about this? Well, we can get some help from the next chapter in Acts 2 because Jesus in Acts 2 preaches a sermon all about Jesus Christ. And he actually preaches quite a long sermon, really, or it's quite a long recording of it. And and it concludes with a clear reference to the risen and exalted Jesus Christ. And he's referring particularly to some Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah. And uh, in effect, around verses 33 to 36, which aren't on the screen, don't need to read them, but in effect, around there, he talks about the sort of victorious, triumphant Messiah who we will one day meet. I just glanced at it myself. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, which he's poured out and what you now see and hear. And then he says, For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now he's making very definite references, particularly with that Old Testament scripture, to Old Testament prophecies of the glory of God, of the glory of God's Messiah, of his glorified state, that he will sit in, in rule over the nations. And this Jesus has been made Lord and Christ. He is the fulfilment of this promise and prophecy about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what I want you to get this morning is essentially Peter is sort of referring to something similar to me, that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Messiah, and one day you will meet him. Now, his congregation at that time, his audience at that time, are largely Jews, so he doesn't have to unpack all this. They know what he's referring to. They know he's making a reference to the Old Testament messianic prophecies. And they respond with, what shall we do? That's what they say then in verse 37. Men and brothers, what shall we do? So let's just read verses 38 to 41, because this is what Peter says to them. And I'm going to read it to you. I think it will go on the screen. 
Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, there is hope. When people say, well, what are we going to do about this then? We're going to meet this same Jesus one day. Because there is hope in the sense that Jesus has provided a way of being fully reconciled to God long before you get to that day when you meet him. There is a promise of complete forgiveness of your sins. Your sins, my sins, and we've all got them. Things we do wrong, the things we, jealousy, pride, lust, anger, our, our, our twisted sort of values that sometimes affect how we behave. The things that we know we do wrong and we all know we fail. These things separate us from God, but they can be forgiven and cleansed. And therefore, we can be reconciled with God so that when we meet him, we're at peace with him. In fact, we can be at peace with him now because our sins are forgiven. Then we can also have a new start. We can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as it's described here. We can have God with us and in us now and a new start and a new hope and a renewal on the inside that works out. These are real things that can be experienced in this day and age. We can have our sins forgiven, we can be reconciled to God, and we can be changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit coming and living in you. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It's not just about changing your ideas, changing your thoughts, following some rules. It's about a new life on the inside through the Holy Spirit. Very important to understand that. And this is a promise from God that those who put faith in his son, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, will have their sins forgiven and will have a new life on the inside, will be filled with his Holy Spirit. And this promise, as it's said here, is not merely for the Jews, though it starts with them. It's it's also for all who are far off. We're far off. We're far off by 2,000 years. We're far off by our racial difference. We're Gentiles, most of us. And this is for all who are far off. It's for all the nations of the earth, all the fallen men and women of earth. They can have their sins forgiven, be reconciled to the Creator and know Him as their Lord and and, and Heavenly Father and be filled with His Spirit. They're for you and your children. They've gone on being available generation after generation. This promise is of God. They're available. The promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then he comes in with a very interesting little challenge in verse 40. With many other words he warned them. He said other things we haven't got recorded. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What was he saying? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Well, the message, which is a modern sort of paraphrase translation, the message version puts it like this. He went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. Now, actually, that carries a sense of it and brings us right back to what we're sort of tussling with this morning. We live in a culture, a generation, that is corrupt and headed for destruction. It's like we're on 
a bus or something that's running down a hill with no brakes, headed for destruction. And to sort of save yourself from this corrupt generation. Get off it and get on one that's going in a safe way. And that sort of appeal is really basic and raw and it's all through the New Testament that we are naturally in a situation where we're headed for judgment with God. If Jesus comes back now and we haven't done anything about it and responded to him at all, we are headed for destruction because we are born into a sort of corrupt generation. We're born in a, in, in a kingdom of darkness. It's another way the Bible puts it. We're in a kingdom of darkness. But we can be rescued and transferred to a kingdom of light. We can save ourselves from this corrupt generation. And if we're serious about being Christians, we need to see that this is a radical change. To be a Christian is to come out from one kingdom and into another. It's not a little bit of something rather that just tidies up your life, gives you a little more ability to cope with life's stresses. It's not like that. You're in a, a, a generation of corruption and destruction and God wants you to save yourself from it and to take yourself and your family with you. That's a bit like the Noah reference I made earlier to the, in praying for uh, little Daniel. That There is a sense in which Noah lived in a corrupt generation. Very corrupt, actually, if you read the story. And God told him a way to save himself from it. And that's totally different to our time, but his message was about building a boat. He built a boat on dry land with no evidence of a flood whatsoever. Looked a silly thing to do. But in doing that, he saved himself from a generation headed for destruction. It was to respond to what God had said, to believe it and apply it to his life. And it wasn't, he did it in faith and it wasn't obvious how it was going to work. When he built this boat, it was not obvious that this was somehow going to save him. He just was obedient to what God said to him in his day and generation. Well, it's similar for us. How do you save yourself from this generation? By putting faith in Jesus Christ. By saying that Jesus died for my sins. He bore my penalty on the cross. In a sense, I repent by turning to Jesus. Repent means to turn. I, I take him seriously. I say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe you bore my sins. I believe I can be forgiven. I can be reconciled to God through what you did. And I thank you for it. Come into my life, Holy Spirit. Change me and fill me. And now I want to follow Jesus. And I will follow Jesus through baptism. I'll say, I died to my old life. I now live for a new life. And and I'm washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And I follow now his ways. That's what they did here. Now that may seem odd, It seemed odd to Noah to build a boat. But it was the way to be saved from this corrupt generation. And there is a way to be saved from this corrupt generation. We're not in Noah's time. You can go and build as many boats as you like. They'll never get you saved from this corrupt generation. But in our day, we've got to be like Noah. We've got to hear the word of God and act on it in our lives. And for us, it's here. And it's a more profound salvation, really. It's to be saved so that when Jesus comes back, we are ready to meet him. We already know him. It's not a big shock. It's a delight because he's already our Lord and our Saviour. We're already developing a relationship with him. We're already walking with him and talking with him. We already have a taste of that age. We already have the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's just a little taste. Now we're entering the fullness when he comes back. So you're saved now and for eternity. 
But there is a personal element, isn't there? Save yourself. There's something only you can do. That's why we keep baptism, as I believe the New Testament does, for those who have already shown faith in Jesus because it's a personal decision. I can't save you. You've got to save yourself. I can tell you the answer. I've been trying to do it in my own limited way over the last few minutes. But in the end, you make the choice. I can't make it for you. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. How? Well, it's here. Put faith in Jesus. Trust him. Thank him. Receive him as your Lord and Saviour. Get filled with his spirit. Say, Lord, I receive your spirit and I want to follow you. I want to be baptised to show that I've made a fresh start following you and then begin to work it out. And you begin an eternal life that will go on forever. And will simply, when Jesus comes back or you physically die, it will just be like the doorway to a fuller experience of his presence. Isn't that wonderful? It's just like you're in the sort of antechamber here and you're going to one day enter the full sort of mansion. It's like you have a foretaste and you're in, inside the building but one day a bigger door is going to open and you're going to see massive rooms you can hardly dream of. And that's what either death or the return of Jesus will be for the one who already has eternal life. It starts now as you put faith in Jesus. So that's my concluding point. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Don't ignore this opportunity to get to know Jesus now because this same Jesus will one day come back. And actually, whether you're around when he comes back or whether you've died beforehand, you will still meet him. And you'll need to know now that you're ready to meet him. Don't, you can't make your mind up then. It'll be too late. Now is the time to save yourself from this corrupt generation.